Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Tuesday, June 27th, and I'm Michelle Jarbo, an enterprise reporter at Crane's Cleveland Business and the moderator of this afternoon's forum. This is the second in the City Club's four-part series here in Public Square, and today's discussion is being presented in partnership with the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. A little bit of table setting here. Like many cities across the United States, Cleveland faces challenges in adapting to 21st century economic realities. The COVID-19 pandemic added to those challenges as employers transitioned to remote work and downtown office vacancies climbed. It's clear that succeeding at economic development will not happen by accident. We need to lay the groundwork to position our communities for success. Today, we will talk about lessons from other legacy cities like Cleveland and try to uncover how Cleveland's policymakers and civic and business leaders can foster regional growth and uplift the city's urban core. Joining me on stage for the conversation is Jeff Epstein, Chief of Integrated Development for the City of Cleveland, Libertad Figueroa, a policy analyst at the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and we are waiting on the momentary arrival of Amanda Lloyd, Program Director of Global Research Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Institute for Urban Research. Uh, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming our panelists today. And I'll start off by asking a basic question. What is the definition of a legacy city? So I can start with that. A legacy city um, is also known as a shrinking city or a post-industrial city. And these are places that at the, okay, during the 20th century um, had great industrial revolutions, but then they had economic declines Okay, so we're talking about these shrinking post-industrial cities, um, which, you know, we're focusing on Cleveland today, but I looked a little bit at the Lincoln Institute's Legacy Cities tool before we got together, and the map also includes Akron, Canton, Youngstown, and closer to home, and much smaller Euclid and Cleveland Heights. So some of what we're talking about today isn't just a lesson for Cleveland, it's applicable ac across the region. So let's talk about what some of the unique challenges are that Legacy cities face. Libertad, can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. So some of the challenges that they face is um, a lack of housing uh, supply for their residents, whether it's quality housing or just having affordable housing. You also have um, high rates of land vacancy. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you also have problems with uh, employment growth. Also challenges with, I'm sorry. These are some examples. Sorry, we're getting a little bit of feedback on a microphone here. Um, so, so since we're sitting in the middle of downtown today, Jeff, I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the needs of the center city specifically, since it's an economic linchpin for the region and the kind of tools that the city can bring to bear to help downtown recover. 
Yeah, so thanks, Michelle, and thanks. Great to be here. Uh, we, we've been working uh, with our partners at Downtown Cleveland Alliance, Greater Cleveland Partnership, released uh, last week, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, reimagining Downtown Cleveland plan uh, that really looks at the future of downtown post-COVID. I think it's interesting to think about our, our, our downtown as being shaped by, uh, as, as part of a legacy city. You know, we've got in, incredible uh, bones here in terms of our, our buildings. Uh, but really need to bring bring people back downtown, and so we're very focused on uh, as a city leveraging and continue to leverage the historic tax credit tool, which has been hugely useful uh, in in converting our office buildings into residential for the last 20 years, and we're well ahead uh, of the rest of the of the country, I think, in terms of the amount of conversions. But really working to to grow that, uh, continuing to be open uh, to to attract businesses, and we're working on a, a new tax incentive. Uh, program for income tax rebates for new businesses that move into Cleveland, not just into the urban core, but into the city uh, overall. Uh, and then we, we've, we've got a huge focus on, on place and experience, and uh, DCA is ramping up the number of events. We are focused long-term on uh, really unlocking the differentiators for our downtown. You know, our downtown has, has grown and flourished over the last 10 or 20 years. It looks a lot different than, than it did 20, 30 years ago, uh, and we think that in the future, unlocking the power of our riverfront and our lakefront, uh, really creating better access, uh, bringing more development to those waterfronts uh, will, will be attractive for more people and businesses and visitors uh, to come downtown. And the last piece I'll mention, I was talking to somebody right before the program, you know, uh, tourism continues to be a, a huge driver uh, of, our, of our downtown economy. Uh, it, it keeps the lights on at many of our, our restaurants and bars, and so I think continue to invest in that and that tourist infrastructure, uh, working with with uh, GCP and, and the Destination Cleveland and others uh, on lighting uh, and, and creative lighting programs for downtown, uh, as well as the the rehab of the of the Global Center and adding that into the Convention Center. You know, critical pieces of our tourist infrastructure here downtown. So you mentioned earlier historic tax credits, and um, a lot of the buildings around us have been refurbished using a mix of federal and state historic tax credits. I wonder what other tools you think state and federal government officials could bring to cities like Cleveland to help them revitalize more quickly. So I could chip in, and I'm curious whether my colleague from uh, from Lincoln has ideas. Uh, so certainly, we, we've been pushing for more for an expansion of the historic tax credit program, and I and I think it, particularly looking at at what's going on in downtowns across the country, uh, we need all the help we can get from the federal government in terms of additional uh, tax credit programs, incentives to be uh, modernizing buildings, you know, taking office buildings uh, that 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 need adjustment uh, for the way people are working right now. People are, we're still having a lot of remote work. We need these kind of creative live work spaces. Uh, and so we, we I, I think, could, could use uh, and have been, been looking at what other, uh, what other states are doing in terms of additional incentive programs that are specifically targeted at, at uh, you know, at, at repurposing, uh, repurposing office buildings and whether that's tax, tax uh, incentives that are coming like the new market or the historic tax credit program uh, that are that are specifically focused on office modernization or leveraging some of the incentive programs that are uh, with the the infrastructure act for energy efficiency uh, and, and kind of re repurposing them to fit the needs of office buildings downtown 
Libertad, do you see particular things that legacy cities need from state and federal policymakers? I think one of the biggest things is understanding, yeah, how to leverage state and federal policies and also just understanding how to increase capacity. Because you get ideas for all these wonderful projects, but then if you have limited staff, if you have limited um, effort, how can you actually be able to get these things off the ground and make them happen? And this is where you have to be creative and forming collaborations with different organizations, different stakeholders, actually get to know your residents and understand what's already happening on the ground where you can partner together to make some of these efforts actually happen and be sustainable long term as well. Mm -hmm. I think Amanda is here joining us. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> she made it here after a delayed flight. <laughs> Delay was longer than the flight. Oh. Well, we're glad you made it here. Thank you. So we, we were just talking a little bit about what legacy cities need from um, state and federal policymakers, and I wonder if, putting you on the spot, if you have any thoughts on that question. Well, coming from the bias of looking at innovation in cities, it's really support uh, and advice on how to do that better and quickly, and um, yeah, basically better and quicker. <laughs> Um, oh, go I, ahead, Jeff. I just wanted to chip in. Uh, I think as we think about legacy cities beyond downtown, I think one of the one of the impacts of legacy cities is every time we're redeveloping something in the city of Cleveland, it's a brownfield, right? So we, we, we need can continue to need uh, funding from the state and federal government for brownfields. And, and one of the big initiatives that we've undertaken through the Bib administration uh, has been an effort to create a uh, $100 million site readiness fund uh, to get large sites together 10 to 50 acres uh, to be able to track the type of onshoring that's coming. And so I think certainly as we think about um, the, the long-term impacts of redeveloping uh, in, in legacy cities, it's that, that financial support uh, to position our real estate uh, for where the economy is going and where the opportunities are to bring more jobs back to, uh, to the urban core. And when you're talking about a brownfield, just for listeners who might not understand, we're talking about a property that's been used before that may have some level of environmental contamination or demolition needs. Correct, yeah. Okay. Um, there's often in Cleveland a downtown versus the neighborhood rhetoric that creates a lot of tension, kind of this feeling of haves versus have-nots. How can legacy cities like Cleveland overcome those dynamics and get things done? I, I, I can jump in and remind everybody downtown is a neighborhood, uh, for, first and foremost. Uh, and I think the reality is that our, our, our city needs investment uh, that benefits the, the people of the city across the entirety of the city. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't look at, at, at this as a zero-sum game where downtown is getting something and a neighborhood is not. Uh, I think we need to think about how to equitably invest dollars uh, th throughout our city in a way that creates economic opportunity, uh, that creates wealth, uh, that brings people to, to, to Cleveland. And I think even as we look at some of the, the major catalytic investments that we're looking at making uh, a downtown, I think it's with an eye towards how do these benefit residents of Cleveland? You know, how, how, does, uh, how do we design uh, a lakefront uh, that is going to benefit residents from, from St. Clair Superior uh, and Glenville? Uh, how do we uh, how do we create our public spaces and program our public spaces in a way that, that benefits not just the visitors and office workers downtown, but everyone? And so I think we're, we're really looking at, um, at, 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 at making investments across the entirety of the city. 
Liebert, Chad, and Amanda, I'm sure you've seen that dynamic in other studies where you've worked. So, so what are your thoughts on how studies can try to mitigate that tension? So one thing that Jeff mentioned is that the downtown is a neighborhood. So looking at it that way, because there's tension when there's, at any time there's development in one neighborhood versus another. And part of the key to that is having transparency in the community so they can understand what's happening and why and what needs to be in place so that their neighborhood is the next one up for whatever project is, is coming. And that's something that actually we're dealing with now with one of our um, community of practice teams in Buffalo. They're trying to create an infill housing strategy, but they're picking certain areas um, in a very disinvested area of the city, but they're looking at certain areas where they already have existing assets so that you're not starting from scratch because this is something where more quickly you can see more tangible results. But they have to have those conversations with the community and be ready for the uncomfortable talks and accept the fact that not everyone will be happy, but explain to them really in ways that they understand what, what is going on and why are they making one selection versus another versus leaving them out of the conversation altogether. I think also that it's really important to talk about a shared vision across neighborhoods. And a lot of times the priorities seem like they're not aligned when they actually are. Um, I don't know a lot about Cleveland, but I do know that with the Climate Action Plan, there are ambassadors in the neighborhoods who are focused on trying to spread the word that we're all, meaning every neighborhood, <laughs> has to deal with this issue at the same time. Um, so really emphasizing that type of messaging that um, it's not one, it's, uh, as he mentioned, it's not a zero-sum game because something like climate doesn't pick a neighborhood. Um, Jeff, Cleveland in recent years has kind of divided the city into three types of neighborhoods. So like the market neighborhoods that are more functional, um, the, the ones that are middle neighborhoods, which maybe aren't as strong but aren't as deeply distressed, and these opportunity neighborhoods where there may not be a functioning private market. How are those classifications impacting the city's decisions around resource allocation? So just to, to fill in a little bit more, so everybody has a framework and the methodology, uh, our, our city uh, planning team and community development team did an in-depth analysis. I looked at like 20 or 30 different metrics uh, of housing performance in neighborhoods to, to kind of create these three typologies of neighborhoods. Uh, and the first way in which we rolled this out is through our, our residential tax abatement process, which for, for many years has been uh, 15 years, 100% on any rehab or new construction anywhere in the city, uh, and uh, starting January next year, uh, that will ratchet down uh, for, uh, for market neighborhoods uh, and for, for middle neighborhoods, but remain at 100% for all affordable housing projects uh, and for market neighborhoods. We've, we've also started using those criteria uh, in our scoring for other competitive uh, grant cycles at the city, so we are in the midst right now of doling out $35 million of gap financing for housing projects. We got $190 million worth of requests, uh, way more than we can we can fill, uh, but folks got extra points in, in opportunity neighborhoods. And I think we're really looking at uh, how can we further differentiate incentives uh, for, for development, for business, uh, in particularly in opportunity neighborhoods. And these are neighborhoods that have seen active, active disinvestment for generations. Uh, so it, it's, it's not just the, the development incentives, but as we're looking at city capital investments, how can we start to create the conditions for market investment? So the mayor has a big focus on, on the southeast side. We've dedicated $15 million of differentiated incentives, specifically at Mount Pleasant 
Lee Harvard and Union Miles on, on housing, catalytic development, and commercial corridors. Uh, and we're leveraging other resources uh, right now. The, the whole public, not the whole, but a, a substantial amount of our public works team is out doing a public works surge along Kinsman Road, um, repairing curbs, repairing street lights, fixing garbage cans, painting hydrants, painting signal boxes, this kind of thing to try to, to create those conditions. And so I think it's, it's looking at, at each of these neighborhoods uh, based on this typology and figure out what is the type of incentive that it needs. You know, market neighborhoods are gonna need different than middle that are getting different in opportunity. Um, I'm gonna go back to some of the comments earlier about making people feel like they're part of the conversation, um, transparency and communication. In discussions about revitalization and development, how do you make people feel heard and feel welcome um, and provide avenues for community engagement where there aren't just a few loud voices drowning out everybody else in the room? A big part of that is letting people understand what's going on. If they don't understand, they can't participate, they can't give you support, they can't give you feedback. Um, and this goes back again to really understanding who is your community, really recognizing what's out there. Um, in a city that, that we've highlighted on our, our site in, in Detroit, they were actually working, they had a large Hispanic population and they were working together to create multilingual documentation and grants so that they can be able to help this community be part of um, business owners in the downtown area. And language was a huge barrier that it wasn't addressed before, it was overlooked. So really understanding who you're working with can help you um, recognize how can you meet these people where they are so that they can be a part of the conversation. Amanda, I think you mentioned something about that during our prep call. Was it about going out to, can you hear me? Okay. Um, was it about going out to grocery stores to engage with residents or like having community meetings at different times? Yeah, so I don't think I've been properly introduced, but I, I live and work in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and Philly is known as a city of neighborhoods. Um, that's sort of what its tagline is, at least locally. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, issues right now going on around our Chinatown and redevelopment and proposals, again, for another stadium. And there's a lot of work around capping um, our, our below grade um, highway. And one of the neighborhoods that, especially in Chinatown, no one is really actively engaged because they don't have the time. They simply just, you know, they, they work too much or they have too many things going on with their kids. And so the local organizers realize that they had to meet them where they actually work and live. Um, so rather than trying to host big events where nobody came, they would actually just walk into grocery stores and then just start talking to people and then say, well, who else should I talk to? And so they did it in a very one-to-one um, -one kind of way, which actually made more of an impact than having a large presentation and then asking people for comments where nobody really wanted to talk in public. They got more honesty and feedback when they were talking to people one-on-one -on, -one on the side of the street or next to the, you know, next to the bananas, so. What other tactics have you seen in different cities that have really worked when it comes to engaging the community more or promoting equitable, truly equitable development? So one, th one thing I wanna say is that community engagement is not a one-size-fits-all recipe. It really has to be catered to that neighborhood and to that community. Um, and again, like Amanda was mentioning, different approaches. You meet people where they are, whatever that looks like. Um, in Lowell, Massachusetts, they were actually getting volunteers to help people be able, they were going to barber shops and farmer's markets to be able to meet people. 
where they were and had volunteers to actually help them fill out applications and forms to be able to, again, continue that conversation instead of just putting all the work on the community member themselves. Are there other cities that you think have been really effective when it comes to democratizing the process? There probably are a lot of them, but actually what I was just thinking, of, because of something that happened recently with the work that I do, um, and we were talking about housing, and, and the U.S. is very market-based, and a lot of what I do is international. And I think that one of the issues around being innovative in the housing space, beyond the policy and the, and the innovative financing piece, is also to understand the, the blocks that happen in legacy procurement, in, uh, in legacy policies that are so embedded and have, have evolved over time that the groups who are trying to be innovative, who are trying to find more innovative financing or more innovative ways to actually build housing are blocked by things that they don't necessarily feel a city is being responsive to. So it, it could be the zoning, it could be um, the way that procurement and financing is done, it could be the way that your housing authority deals with um, the speed of paperwork. <laughs> there can be a whole range of things and often those things aren't addressed. They just sort of get lumped into a, the process. Like you just have to deal with it and or we'll streamline it eventually. <laughs> so I think a lot of times um, those little, the, the devils in the detail issues can get, can get lost when you're talking at the neighborhood level. Um, but they're actually really important to actually keep the momentum moving because otherwise you get a lot of frustration at the high level when someone says, well, why isn't this happening? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's, it's, not, the, it's not the mission that's, that's stopping it, it's the details. It's, the, it's, it's literally, <laughs> they can't get past line three on a, on a form, right? It's something, something that simple. Um, and it's hard to get into those details at a community meeting, but it needs to happen with at least the groups who are also the community who are trying to be that innovative in that sphere. Sure, I hear a lot about that from developers and business owners. Libertad, were you gonna dump, jump in with something? Yeah, so one more thing I would like to add is also, um, you have to be consistent. It's not also just a, a one-time engagement effort and you're done. Uh, you, you have to be consistent and you can pick, you know, small hanging fruit to be able to show the community. It's like, we may not be able to accomplish this high demand right now, but there are other things that we can do to show them because you also have to acknowledge the fact that not every neighborhood or community has trust in their local government or city staff. So how do you build those relationships? And you have to keep showing up time and time again. And this is something that we're learning from um, partners that we have at St. Louis, where you know, let my actions show you that I care, that I am investing in you, that I, I'm here for you. I'm not just taking up some of your time for a couple hours and then just leaving and never coming back with results. But let me show you time and time again that I'm paying attention to the small things you're telling me. So there was a lot in there about improving process and, and that made me think about the need for cities to build capacity to be able to do things like faster permitting or implementing form-based zoning, which I know the city of Cleveland has been working toward for a while now. So I, I wonder how is Cleveland trying to build capacity, particularly at a time when many city departments are understaffed, just like a lot of private sector employers are struggling to find people. Yeah, but it's, it's a great question. I think we're, we're out as much as we can networking and trying to, to, to recruit more talent. Uh, we've had a couple great folks join us recently. Um, you know, one one from, coming from out of town, Rhonda Brown, who's gonna be our senior strategist for, for arts. 
and, and Marvin Owens, who's our Southeast senior strategist. And so I think as, as we continue to accomplish more and show uh, you know, what, what the vision is for the city. I think that enables us to recruit more talent, but I think we're adjusting and trying to adjust along with everyone else to, uh, you know, we've got some unique pressures in the city with, with remote work and competing with remote work. You know, we're in at City Hall five days a week uh, and, and, and being able to, to compete for talent in this marketplace. But I think it's a, it, is a, uh, it is a mission critical need uh, for us at City Hall. To, we, we can't get enough good people uh, to, to do the work and there's a lot of work to be done. And I, I know Amanda talked in the run up to this event about the importance of city networks and be, being able to, especially in a resource constrained environment, be able to draw on other cities or outside organizations for support. So Amanda, can you talk about a little bit about how you've seen that work? Yeah, I can, I can talk to it both locally, nationally and, and internationally actually. And uh, Cleveland happens to be by sort of coincidence of timing, a, a perfect example of this. So um, at the University of Pennsylvania, we have uh, partnered with the Sustainable Development Network uh, based out of the UN to start a new secretariat around urban financing. And um, one of the mayors, where one of the distinctions about the, about the secretariat is half of them are mayors from around the world. Um, and your mayor, uh, Mayor Bitt, was uh, was flagged as someone we really wanted to talk to and to connect him internationally with other mayors. And that really makes a difference, I think, for everybody to be in a learning environment like that. Um, it's, it, you're not just learning from similar cities in the US, you're learning from similar cities in the Caribbean, in South America, across Europe. Um, in the case of this secretariat, you're, you're meeting folks from as far as Congo and Malaysia and Indonesia and learning what they're doing differently in their cities and then bringing it back to Cleveland. Um, so hopefully those kinds of networks um, sort of trickle down and trickle out at the same time. And so everyone's learning from each other and right now with so many crises going on and so much stress, um, the more we can learn from each other and the faster we can do that, the better. So there are a lot of great examples that uh, that Cleveland is doing that a lot of cities, to be honest, are way behind the ball on internationally. Cleveland is ahead of the game when it comes to innovation. Um, and so they will be learning from, uh, from Mayor Bibb about what, you know, what's working here and what's not working here. And then he'll be able to hear from Paris or, <laughs> or wherever about what he can bring back here. So I think that's also really important to recognize that you don't actually always have to have homegrown ideas that you can borrow and adapt the ones that are already out there. Um, I'm going to move toward the audience Q&A now. So for our live stream audience, or those who are just joining, I'm Michelle Jarbo, enterprise reporter from Crane's Cleveland Business and the moderator for today's forum. Joining me is Jeff Epstein with the City of Cleveland, Libertad Figueroa, Figueroa, I apologize, from the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy, and Amanda Lloyd with the University of Pennsylvania. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you would like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And the City Club staff will try to work your question into the program. May we have the first question, please? 
Hi there. Um, this is going to sound bad. Uh, my name is Lisa Rapaski. I'm a recent CSU grad at the Levin College. I've spent the past two years uh, using UPenn research on uh, guaranteed income. Um, and I try to figure out uh, the kind of investment landlord situation here. And there's really no data that I can find. Um, there's an excellent study in Detroit. And all of my, my studies kept leading to Detroit. So there's this incredible data, and I believe it's a dynamic kind of dashboard of what's going on in terms of um, just people being played, right? You get a, a contract with a landlord, you think you're gonna be able to buy it, you miss one payment, you're evicted. And so, I mean, the data was incredible, and not everyone cares about the data, but I do. That's why I went to CSU. So um, I do need a job. Um, I'm not asking, I have, you know, the credentials, the receipts, whatever, to show you. Excuse me? I have lots of questions. So one of the questions I texted in was this report that you talked about and like the brownfill and looking for development, um, is that available to the public yet? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure which report it, it, it was. I mean, we we have launched a fund uh, and and have talked publicly about what that the goals of that fund are in terms of, of uh, attracting more development and more jobs to the city. But but as far as as far as data is concerned, I, I would say we've got a great. Uh, we were talking earlier a great uh, new department at City Hall, Urban AI and Analytics. Uh, led by Liz Crow, and we are we are actively working uh, at at unpacking and unlocking uh, more data uh, from City Hall, making it publicly available, uh, so that that researchers can can work with it, and we can devise policy solutions. Okay, uh, my question is about uh, <coughs> uh, tourism. Um, do you think it would be a good idea to promote? Uh, Public, at public transportation to tourists because we had a beeline trolley. That's a, a free downtown loop bus, and we had a Healthline bus. It goes to Public Square and Playhouse Square, uh, University Circle, Lakeview Cemetery. So I'll just. So my question is: Should we advertise public transportation to the tourists? I'll, I'll take that uh, as locally. I, absolutely, I mean, we've got a great public transportation network here in Cleveland, uh, and, and I know our partners at Destination Cleveland are working more uh, to market uh, neighborhood experiences outside of downtown uh, to tourists and, and the ability to, to take public transit. Uh, to that, I'll say, you know, one, one of the things um, we're, we're actively working on with a, with a number of partners, uh, uh, you know, with Bedrock on, on the riverfront is, you know, the potential impacts of that development in terms of, of making the, the RTA station there more accessible, more visible, uh, as well as the, the potential to bring uh, the Cuyahoga Valley Scenic Railroad uh, up into, into Cleveland and downtown, which I think, again, would be a great tourist experience. And I would, I would only add one thing is if you're going to market to tourists, make it easy. I can tell you from experience in Philadelphia and from other places that I've been to that the harder you make it for them to use it, the more they won't. 
<laughs> it's just that simple. There's too much on a tourist plate to be able to try and wrestle with apps and confusing station instructions and things like that. So that's, that's one of those little small pieces that often can <laughs> break a really good marketing <laughs> message. Hi, good afternoon, I'm Lou. Uh, I would like to echo the previous uh, person asking question and your comments. Public transit will be a very vital uh, element into our topic today. However, in our area, I have to say, our public transit has been ignored, neglected, not even uh, uh, allow uh, our public transit authority to get a proper funding. That's why we had to suffer from not having the E-Line trolley, for example, that it doesn't only just hurt the tourism, it actually hurts the whole downtown community altogether. So for today's topic, what kind of effort will we put in, not just to show a good data on the computer screen, what real effort we can actually put in uh, to vitalize our public transit in order to increase the housing population and the downtown local economy? That's what we need to know. Thank you. Libertad, weren't you just at a meeting about transit-oriented development in Cleveland? Yes, I was. Um, so we partnered with Impact to be able to host across uh, four different legacy cities, uh, having the conversation on equitable transit-oriented development. And yesterday, I actually participated in the last Move Roundtable session here in Cleveland, where a big goal of this um, pilot project is really just bringing different stakeholders to the table to have a common conversation. And it was interesting, this was um, one of the first round tables where it was all different members of staff. It wasn't really um, including community members, but it's staff that work across different departments and organizations and have never been able to sit at a table together to have conversations on the same topics and goals that they're each addressing, which is highlighting how siloed some of our systems are, and this is all across legacy cities, and other cities as well. And you need to create that space to be able to bring these people together to talk because then also it helps you from duplicating efforts. It helps you from understanding what have you done, what hasn't worked, what is working. But just having that space to share those conversations to be able to together be able to understand how can we divide and conquer and really tackle this and move forward. I know home ownership is uh, important in every neighborhood. But downtown, how do we encourage de developers to convert some of these buildings into both condominiums where some of the younger people who live down here can uh, build up some sort of equity, number one. And number two, I found that uh, renters tend to be more transient, owners tend to be more permanent. How do we encourage developers to do that? Jeff, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I can, I can, I can give it a try. It's a, a problem that's, that we, we've been working on with, with DCA and others for years. I think we would love to see more investment downtown, you know, coming out of the, out of the recession. Uh, banks have been hesitant to, to lend in for, for condos in terms of the underwriting. And so it's re really difficult to finance uh, condo conversions downtown. But I think as, it'll be interesting to see trends as, as residential abatement uh, rolls off on some of the downtown buildings, whether there'll be pressure uh, to, to convert to condos. I think it's certainly something at, at, at the city uh, that we're, we're open to looking at, at creative ways that we can, we can help incentivize uh, more, more home ownership opportunities, uh, not just in the downtown core, but, but throughout the city.
Greetings. Hello. How are you? Yes, all I want to say is, well, I know downtown is looking good, but it's Tower City. Tower City is need of some good new and old stores that would need to be brought back again. Because right now, Tower City is way going downhill. And also, it's about the night, the 90 as well. They need anything we can go back to is, I was thinking about going back to his old route indeed and also the police the police need to be reformed stay focused and do a neighborhood city and also city and street watch to protect every both young and elderly and protect them from any harm and making sure everyone is safe praise the lord so I know there was quite a bit of discussion about safety at last week's forum on downtown. So if anybody hasn't seen or heard that, you can go back and listen to that online. Um, as far as Tower City goes, there is a major redevelopment plan for that that also involves the riverfront. Um, Jeff, do you want to talk a little bit about what the city is doing to work with the property owner, Bedrock, there? Yeah, so I, I know Bedrock has been working hard to retenant Tower City. I think it, it is last year did the... the um, redesign of the fountain area with, with uh, the parks. Uh, there's a number of exciting new tenants that are coming in. And part of the Bedrock Master Plan, if you haven't seen it, you can, you can Google it and, and see some of the plans is opening up the back of Tower City and connecting down to the riverfront, uh, kind of creating a, a core to shore uh, experience uh, from Public Square all the way down to the river. So uh, working very closely with, with Bedrock, with a variety of our city departments to recognize what I think would be a really exciting vision for, for downtown in terms of activating our riverfront, uh, re-energizing Tower City, and, and connecting Public Square to the water. A little better. Okay. I think one of the uh, questions that's got to be constantly on your mind is how do you do all these great plans but maintain the legitimacy of the whole process? There was a, a great bit of wall graffiti in one of the periodic insurgencies in France, and one of the things that they did is they conjugated the verb to participate. And it said, I participate, you participate, we all participate, they decide. There has been a decline in the democratic grassroots organizations in Cleveland. And they have always played a part all the way back to the 1930s and the 1970s, which I was most familiar with, the community organizing groups that took place, on through organizations such as Cleveland Tenants Organization, which I'm a retiree of, which no longer exists. And there's got to be a discussion of democracy in Cleveland. And I don't mean just democracy that is handed to the people by the great and the good. I mean democracy that comes up from the grassroots and democracy that is funded in a diverse way so that if you happen to piss off 
a foundation, they don't cut your throat the next time funding comes along. So I'm just telling you what it is and I've been involved in it. So I think what you all have to do is to keep that. Okay. Does anybody want to weigh in on how you keep engagement authentic? We talked about it a little bit already here. Well, I'll, I'll say something, having uh, spent the last almost decade now at the University of Pennsylvania, and that a lot of, a lot of what I see, a lot of the hope that I see is in all the young people. Now I'm officially old, I think, so <laughs> it's, it's really the, it's the generation after us that I really see a lot of hope in, and very, very, very active in their communities when they see what's happening. And I, and I really do think that a lot of the, the hope that I have is that it's that generation. They, you know, they are jumping onto fellowships like the, um, the, like the public service fellowships that you have here. They really, you know, when they see an opportunity to make a difference, they are making a difference. And I, you know, I would, I would like to think that, you know, that that's, that's where we're gonna see the difference is it's coming from the bottom up from the younger generation. So I'm just gonna leave it there. <laughs> I'll just add, you know, I, I, I think one of the, one of the things that, that has maybe led to this trend in, in, in Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, is, is the need for people to see, you know, see, see the impact of, of weighing in with their voice and feel like it matters and that something is happening and something is being delivered. Uh, and I think the work that, that we're doing to create a more responsive government uh, to, to be more thoughtful about the engagement that we're doing in the community, uh, to partner more with neighborhood organizations to really uh, shape projects. And that's, I, I came to this work from community development, from Midtown, uh, where we really worked very hard uh, to shape what we're doing with the voice of, of community members uh, and for community members. And I, I think people need to see themselves uh, in their government and that's the work that I know the, the, our, our team is trying to do every day. Hi, so brief comment. Um, I had the opportunity to participate in the opening of the underneath of the Veterans Memorial Bridge that happened this past weekend. And I thought that was a really beautiful space that I hope there's some development conversations with the city about revitalizing, particularly since there's such an east-west divide. And so I'm curious what sort of efforts are being done to help bridge the two sides of Cleveland, especially with the wealth divide in this downtown redevelopment that we're talking about. I think that's another one for Jeff. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I missed out of the bridge tour this weekend, but I've been many times, and, and I think it's an exciting project. It's, I know it's a passion project uh, that our, our county exec is very, very excited about. Um, and so I look forward to working with the county on, on, on bringing that to reality. I think there are a number of other uh, similar projects, uh, the, the downtown loop trail that I know we're, we're working on uh, it's kind of a, a, a bike trail connecting through downtown, the, the rest of the bike network. Um, and I think there, there really are a, a lot of opportunities with, through the waterfronts, through the flats, and all the development that's coming on there to, to try to better connect uh, downtown and, and, and the west side. Thanks. All right. Good afternoon, uh, Chief and all of the panelists. Um, my question is about 
uh, timing in terms of redevelopment. I got a chance to look at the study online, um, uh, and I appreciated the analysis that was done by the uh, by the Lincoln Institute. Um, when you look at elected officials, uh, they typically have a timeline of four years for a term, basically, to get stuff done. Um, but a lot of the decisions, especially on major projects, will involve some type of bonding or financing that will, uh, could take 20, 30, or even 40 years. Can you talk about the tension of the need to get stuff done urgent, urgently, like within an elected official's term, but at the same time having decisions that carry on into future terms where you might also be bound by the decisions made by previous administrations before you? Can you kind of talk about how other cities have navigated the urgency, but also the long-term, um, decades-long impact that some of these major decision, uh, major projects will have. So I, I'll toss that to Libertad or Amanda first for the outside city perspective before we come back to Cleveland. So we've worked with a city in the past where uh, they were on the verge of creating a project, but they were um, in the process of getting a new mayor. And one of the key things that they did to be able to continue that support was that they created a strong relationship, again, with the community. So that even when there is a change in office, you still have enough support around you where this can't just disappear, this can't be pushed under the rock, this is something that can't be ignored and has to be able to continue. And building those relationships is a very strong key that shouldn't be overlooked because again, there, there's plans, there's projects, things that take decades to complete and you'll see many changes in office between then, but you need to have enough support for it to continue to survive. I think I'll just say simply that it, this is where having really good public servants, and I really do mean public servants, makes a really big difference who are, will spend their lifetime in their communities working on projects. Um, in, in Philadelphia, I can, I can think of somebody in our transportation division who's been there for 25 years and he started off with a uh, federal project that they said would take five years and they're still working on it. Um, and he has to come up to the neighborhoods every year and explain what's happening or what's not happening. But he is the institutional knowledge. He is the one that gives people confidence of what's happening, you know, what are the delays, what are the changes, who are all the players in place. So even if the mayors have changed at this point probably three or four times, they know who they can go to. And I think that really does make a, a difference. And it doesn't always happen, but when you do have that, I think it makes, um, it makes that time frame uh, doable. And Jeff, can you comment on how the city is looking at those sort of projects that transcend yeah. administrations? Yeah, but I, I agree with both my colleagues in terms of the approach. Uh, you know, I think it, it's absolutely critical to get as broad base of a support as possible going into to a vision. I, I also very much believe in the importance of, of learning and iterating uh, and, and, and continuing to evolve projects. You know, things are not static. Uh, I also think we're, we're, we're looking at putting in place things right now that we're working on that are going to be realized w well beyond Mayor Bibb's term in office. You know, think about the, the sites fund. Uh, the lakefront projects, the, the riverfront project, the work in the southeast side, and I think it's about building that broad stakeholder base, laying a vision, making the initial investments, but realizing that, that this work is bigger than any individual person or, or public servant or politician. Uh, and if we're truly advancing uh, on behalf of our residents in ways that we, that we collectively uh, know are gonna improve our community, that work will, will, will be able to live on. 
Well, thank you to Jeff, Libertad, and Amanda for joining us at the City Club today. Um, today's forum on mapping the economic future of downtown Cleveland was sponsored by the Lincoln Institute of Land Policy. And the City Club and Public Square series is presented with support from Thompson Hine and Downtown Cleveland Inc. with additional support from citizens. It is also part of the City Club and the community sponsored by Bank of America. The City Club is grateful for the continued support of each of these partners. Stay tuned tomorrow, June 28th, the City Club will be at Jacobs Pavilion for the 2023 State of the County with Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Ronane. And on Thursday, June 29th, Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America, will join the City Club for a discussion about his organization's priorities and strategies in the ever-changing world of banking. You can learn about these forums and others at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to our panelists, and thank you members and friends of the City Club. I'm Michelle Jarbo, and this forum is now adjourned.